Enter to win a $100 Amazon gift card when you take my five-minute survey and let me know what you think about Your Money, Your Wealth. You'll find a link right at the top of the show notes for this episode at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. What financial topics matter to you the most? What are your favorite parts of the podcast? What would make this show even better for you? Fill out the survey by August 17th and help me make this your favorite podcast ever. Find the link to the survey and all the resources you hear mentioned in the show in the show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Coming up, if you had to buy and hold one stock for the rest of your life, or if you had to choose one investing style and stick with it for the rest of your life, what would you choose? Meb Faber from the Meb Faber Show podcast answers those questions and talks about his upcoming book, The Best Investment Writing, Volume 2. Plus, we'll check in with Pure Financial Advisors Director of Research, Brian Perry, CFP, CFA, for a 2018 second quarter market update. Finally, Joe and Big Al talk about big changes that could be coming to our 401ks and IRAs and more possible tax cuts from the Trump administration. Here to tell us all about it are Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA. Hey, uh, what's this going on with the Trump administration with a new tax cut? Well, this is uh, just was announced this week um, that uh, Stephen Mnuchin, their, our Treasury, Treasury Secretary, he was talking about uh, changing the capital gain rates, Joe, and this is uh, the best that they could figure. This would be about a hundred billion dollar tax cut, mainly to wealthy individuals, because those are the ones that are buying and selling investments and, and capital gains. So capital gain is when you have an asset outside of retirement, you buy it at one price, you sell it at a higher price, and you pay a special capital gains rate. And that rate is depends upon your other tax bracket. It could be zero percent, it could be fifteen percent, it could be twenty percent. But that's a lot lower than the highest tax rate, which is thirty-seven percent. And that's why years ago, remember Warren Buffett, there was a big article about how he paid a lower rate than his secretary. That's because his income was capital gains and his secretary was ordinary income. Right. Right. So at any rate, here's what they're suggesting uh, is that they want to add a an inflation onto the cost basis. And I'll give you an example, Joe, uh, which is this. Is, um, if, if, and so this is a high earner spends $100,000 on a stock bought in 1980, and it sold for a million dollars today. So that would be a $900,000 gain under current law, and you'd pay a capital gains tax on that, which likely would be mostly 20%. And then, of course, there's a Medicare surtax, another 3.8% tax on top of that, plus state. So it's not free, but it's... Uh, it's a lot better than the regular ordinary rates. But here's what they're saying is if they add an inflation adjustment, maybe depending upon what the inflation was from 1980 to when it's sold, maybe the cost basis would be increased to say $300,000 from the original $100,000. And so therefore you'd only pay a tax gain on 700,000 of gain. I've never heard of anything like this. <laughs> Actually, it was discussed under the time of uh, Bush? President Bush. Right. It didn't go anywhere. And because I, I read that in the same article yeah, in the New York Times, right? And I'm like, I don't remember that. And well, I, and I don't either. I think that was just something they discussed and then they dropped. And I'm going to give you my opinion right now. This this will not go anywhere. You don't think so? No, because this is completely contrary to everything the IRS does in terms of dollars in, dollars out, cost basis. In terms of a dollar that you receive that you, it wasn't a gift. It was earned. It's taxable, and you can't change your your basis. Your cost basis. That there is an exception, Joe, and that's when you pass some someone passes away, there is a step up in basis. That's the only time when there's a change in cost basis that I'm have been aware of in the history of the tax law. Right. I don't know how they would 
So you got to look at the the purchase date and then use a certain inflation rider. Yeah, presumably the the IRS the would, would, or... would announce what it was for that year and what do you do if it's mid year? I I don't know. Right. So what they're trying to do is increase the cost basis to reduce the tax that people would have to pay if they held an asset for a very long time. Right. And so that happens if you have highly appreciated assets, such as real estate, such as stocks. But here's another thing that's kind of interesting. With real estate, you can avoid the tax with the 1031 exchange. Yeah. So you But did... you cannot exchange a stock. Right. That's you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. So there's all sorts of different kind of weird loopholes in the tax code that doesn't sure. make a lot of sense to a lot of people. Yeah, and the, and even the 1031 exchange, you're not getting out of the tax. You're just deferring, deferring it to it. when you when you actually sell that that final property. Except if you die, if you die with the property, and then there's a step up in basis for your beneficiaries. Right, right, right. And then and then it depends upon what state you live in. If you live in California, which is a community property state, even your spouse gets a full step up in basis. But if you if you live in a non-community property state and your and your spouse takes over, it's only a fifty percent step up in basis. So it gets kind of complicated. But Joe, I I guess Penn Wharton did a a model on this to figure out what the impact would be, and they came up with a hundred two billion dollars uh, reduced taxes over the next decade, and they said eighty six percent of the benefits would go to the top one percent of taxpayers. Well. Yeah, I mean, the top 1%, too, they always kind of throw that out there. Of course. Because here's the problem with all this, is that I would say most Americans save money for long-term growth in either two asset or or in a retirement account or potentially real estate. Uh, You and I have been doing this very for a long time, and we very rarely see an individual that has accumulated a lot of wealth outside of a retirement account unless they sold a business, right. unless they inherited the money, or unless they sold some real estate. Yeah, that's typically, that's correct. So typically, the the clients that we see, and, and for most people out there, the, their highest gains in their stock portfolios in their 401k, their IRA, their retirement accounts, which it gets taxed as ordinary income. So this this potential change would not affect that. Right. This is only assets outside of retirement accounts, and so it's typically those that have money to invest, or maybe you were fortunate enough to start a business, and then you were able to sell that business down the line and, and got a big capital gain that way. So I and I think I would guess, and I you know I I don't want to dive too much into politics, but I would guess the Republican Party would be thinking this would be a good idea because then there would be less tax on capital gains, and there there would be more reason to do investing, investing in companies and stocks, create jobs, and so that that's what one side of the hall right would, yeah, yeah. What, the, what what the article was stating is that all right it could free up some capital because no one's selling this stuff because they don't want to pay the tax yeah and so it's just sitting there in so, a, so in a highly appreciated stock and they're yeah. not going to sell that stock but hey if we give them a benefit to sell the stock now they sell the stock they reduce their taxes and they redeploy that capital to other ventures right they buy right. more stocks or they invest in more stuff or they buy more goods and services to to spur the economy right and you could imagine the democrats see this a little bit differently they could yeah they do oh do they <laughs> And I'm not going to even dive into that. But uh, anyway, that's what's uh, being discussed right now. And and one of the interesting things that I find uh, is it it would seem to me this would have to be approved by Congress and Senate. But yeah, they're saying they could try to try to push it through without they're, any approval. They're, they're looking into that, right. which is interesting, yeah, very. to say the least. And I'm not going to go there. But at, at any rate. Uh, I guess apparently the Bush administration looked into the same thing, whether they could do it on their own, and they concluded that they could not. 
But anyway, who knows? But I, I personally think this is not very likely that's going to happen. What other changes coming up? Well, some other things that have been discussed probably over the last month or two, uh, and I'll just run through some of these things that may affect your 401k, may affect your IRA. Uh, the first one is this, uh, is 401k sponsors might have to show you on each statement how much income your balance would generate with an annuity. In other words, the idea is to show you, all right, if you got $100,000, what does that mean in terms of annual income? So that's like a financial engines type of thing. Yeah, right. You know, like yeah. a, a quasi, um, I was going to say something that w- would not be legal to say on the air. <laughs> okay, good, um, good thing uh, you stopped yourself. <laughs> like, a, it, you know, a, a not very good calculator, a, a financial calculator that will say, hey, you have this much, you can anticipate this much in income. Right. And they're yeah. just using some arbitrary numbers. Yeah, and I think that the, uh, the concept's not necessarily bad because I think there's a lot of misconceptions. Some people think that if the stock market has, in, over the last 100 years, has averaged 10% per year, mm-hmm. which is true. It's a little bit under 10%, but roughly. That's through bus, you know, the roaring times, bus, and everything. So if you're thinking you can pull out 10% out of your portfolio each year and be okay, you got another thing coming because the market doesn't go sure. in averages. It goes all over the place. Yeah, but we've also ran into people that it's like, well, here, I can retire because this is. they think it's a guaranteed income stream. Right. So now if we're showing... If you purchased an annuity, then that would be a guaranteed income stream. It, it would. It, it would. So anyway, so that, that's one thing that's being discussed. Another thing, Joe, is to potentially lift the age limits on IRA contributions. Right now, you can only do IRA contributions if you're, you're under 70 and a half. So they're actually talking about changing that to where anyone could do it. Now, the Roth IRA contribution, you can do at any age. You just have to have earned income between you and your spouse. Right. I mean, you can contribute to a 401k if you're in your 70s. Sure. But you can't contribute to an IRA in your 70s. Yeah. And uh, why is that? Right. <laughs> well, I would imagine they're trying to track down the required distributions. And so if I'm still making contributions, well, they could probably back check that with earned income on they your could. tax return. Yeah. With computers. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's not that hard. A third thing, and we talked about this, I think, a week or two ago, is is a new type of universal savings account that would offer more flexible withdrawal rules uh, on existing retirement accounts, such as an emergency fund, such as a down payment, such as kids' education. Right. Which I'm not, I don't think you or I are really in favor of that, because then the tendency is to take what should be a retirement account and spend it on things you shouldn't, and then you're in trouble later. Yeah. So, I don't know, they're always monkeying around with this. And I don't know who comes up with some of this stuff, but um, anyway. You know, we'll always keep you updated on the latest news and changes affecting your portfolio and your retirement savings. So keep your ear on the podcast. We've got a quarter two market recap coming up momentarily. And if you didn't see it on our Facebook page, Joe and Big Al have started recording season five of the Your Money, Your Wealth TV show. Brand new episodes on how the new tax law will affect your retirement, social security secrets, managing risk in retirement, and more. We'll start to hit yourmoneyyourwealth.com at the beginning of September. If you're in San Diego, you can catch the show Sunday mornings at 6.30 a.m. on CBS 8. Alan, you know, we just finished second quarter. Did you know that? I did know that, Joe, and it's uh, probably time to get sort of a market update. I think so. Let's see what the markets did. We got Brian Perry. He's a director of research at Pure Financial Advisors. He's a certified financial planner and a chartered financial analyst. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. 
Can you tell us what the hell happened in the markets this past quarter and maybe just sum some stuff up for us yeah, of what and, we can anticipate? And you have to make it so we can understand it. Well, that's going to be tough, but yes. I, I might be able to make it so that the average uh, listener can understand it, it at well, least. Even, even for us, because okay. we're not necessarily average. The, the no. market's been flat. It has been flat, but it's been going up and down in order to arrive at a relatively flat destination. So it's definitely been a little bit different than the last few years. 2017, a one-way ride higher, right? We started the year and, and more or less went straight up with limited volatility. This year, we started gangbusters in January, had a sharp sell-off, went back up, went back down. Um, and then Q2 actually turned out to be pretty good. We were up about 4% in the U.S. in second quarter, which has continued actually into the third quarter as well. That's if you were invested in the U.S. Emerging markets were a whole different story. Emerging markets were down almost 8% in Q2. Just for th- just the... Still, can I speak? <laughs> just for the few months of the second quarter. That's not for the year. That's no. just a, a quarter. Exactly, down 8%. And that's the old principle, right? What goes up can go down. And emerging markets had been the best performing asset class last year in 2017, having a horrible year this year. Um, and in fact, Q2 and, and saw a lot of reversals of what had done well started doing started not doing as well. The old reversion to the mean principle that we see so often time and again in the markets. How, how about other international markets? You know, more muted, but also down. The U.S. was the star performer in the uh, second quarter. International developed in general down about one percent. Um, a big part of that was the U.S. dollar. So the U.S. dollar strengthened against most currencies in the second quarter. And what happens is when the U.S. dollar strengthens, that hurts the returns of foreign stocks for U.S. investors. Why'd that happen? (sighs) Because sometimes (laughs) markets go up and sometimes markets go down would be the honest answer. Um, But a lot of it has to do with, um, if you want me to weave a narrative, interest rate differentials. The traditionally U.S. and, say, core European bonds like Germany and France tend to trade relatively close in alignment. And right now, you can get close to 3% on a 10-year U.S. bond and probably a half of 1% on a German bond. So there's a lot of international investors seeking exposure to the U.S. because of that. Um, The U.S. is also perceived in in the face of these trade wars that we have, or I guess we don't have trade wars, but we have tariffs going on and hoping not to have a trade war. Uh, The U.S. is perceived as a little bit of a safe haven that, not that we would win a trade war, but we might lose less. And so those things as well make the U.S. an attractive haven and seeing some inflows, which is likely leading to a stronger dollar. That was a good narrative. (laughs) That was really good. So I got a question. So so, uh, tariffs and trade wars, how how might we expect that to affect the market or or will it or won't it or what, what, what would we expect? Yeah, you know, there are, despite some political rhetoric, there are no winners from a trade war. Um, There's just, as I mentioned, those that lose less. And if you look as a percentage of GDP trade for the United States, because we're such a large, diverse economy and such a big place, uh, trade is a much smaller percentage of gross domestic product in the U.S. than in most other countries. So relatively speaking, the impact should be relatively smaller. And and you're hearing more and more stories come out now that the trade, uh, the tariffs and whatnot are beginning to impact China a little bit more in a stories and who knows the truth of them or the veracity of them, but about a little bit of political upheaval or people beginning to complain about the economy slowing over there because of this. Um, The impact on markets so far has been relatively muted, and it's been contained to when a tweet or a new announcement about a tariff comes out, markets seem to sell off for about 15 minutes and then recover and go on their merry way. And, And it's really quite a tug of war now between solid economic growth, where unemployment's near a three or four decade low. The economy grew 4.1% 
last quarter, which was the highest that we've seen in four years and one of the highest rates since the financial crisis. So on the one hand, you've got a strong economy and strong corporate profits. And then on the other side of that, you've got these trade wars, which all else being equal could be very bad for the economy. And most of the time right now, it seems like markets are focusing on the good news. The glass is half full. Um, Every once in a while, as a new development occurs, markets turn their attention to trade wars. Uh, you know, this isn't a prediction, but my fear would be that maybe markets are discounting the possibility of, of a trade war, where right now the tariffs are designed to get fairer trade deals for the United States and other countries are retaliating in kind. I don't think any country wants a trade war, but if things get out of control and we do actually wind up with one, I, I think that the market could at that point see a significant correction. Well, with the amount of trade that we do, is um, China the largest um, participant in our trade? Is that why we always hear about China? Or Canada, or I mean Mexico. I mean, you, you know, I thought we had this North American treaty where we would always, you know, keep our brothers in line. Yeah. So um, the last I looked, uh, we are the biggest trading partner for Mexico and Canada. You know, kind of more local. If you think about it, <clears throat> when you're going to do trade, something like cement, for instance, you're probably not going to import from China just because of the cost of shipping would outweigh the the value of it per cubic foot or something like that. So you're going to import something like a cell phone from China that the value to weight ratio is a little bit higher. Um, so, but when we're importing raw materials and stuff like that or other goods, a lot of that comes from Mexico and Canada because of proximity. Um, and there, a lot of it is the auto industry, quite frankly, is a, is a lot of the trade deficit that we've seen with them. Um, China, you, you get a high-profile trade deficit, and it definitely attracts attention, um, but they are not our biggest trading partner. What else happened this quarter that we should be aware of, if anything? Well, there's always a lot. Uh, you know, I think the key is not so much what happens, but it's what do you pay attention to. And I think the challenge for investors is always to filter out a lot of the noise and, and focus on the core of what's actually occurring. And, and what's actually occurring is a little bit of rotation from what happened in 2017 towards what started working in 2018 and in Q2. Um, also, frankly, a return to more normal markets, where 2017 was very abnormal, a very calm ride higher, like I mentioned. That's not normal. Normality is a strong market followed by a sharp sell-off, followed by a strong market, followed by some volatility, um, diversified portfolios uh, doing well, but some assets going up and some assets going down. Right? I mean, we've seen bonds this year have one of their worst years on record. Um, now, fortunately, high-quality bonds are relatively muted as far as their price movements. So one of the worst years on record, they're down about 1%, 1.5%, depending on the portfolio. Um, but I, I think one of the notable developments there in the second quarter was that interest rates didn't go significantly higher. And so while everybody's worried about rising interest rates, and they've continued to kind of bump along in that 2 and 3 quarter to 3% range for the 10-year Treasury, we haven't seen that sharp spike higher that so many people have been predicting for so long. And so many people asking, hey, should I get out of bonds? What happens when they go higher? Um, And my response always being, well, you could have asked me that question two years ago or five years ago or 10 years ago, and we're still waiting for that to occur. So worst record for bonds. So didn't we call this that interest rates were going to go up, so bond prices were going to go down? So shouldn't we just get out of bonds? Yeah, and I mean, now we see it that we had the worst record in bonds. Yeah, and, and then you combine that with stocks near all-time highs, and it's like that—that's the question. Bonds, no good. Stocks, no good. Right now, what? Yeah, I mean, maybe take it to Vegas or Bitcoin or something like that. Right? Um, no, it's—it's it's a challenge when everything's expensive. What do you buy? Um, I think when you look at valuations, first of all, it's—it's it's pretty clear that 
at the market-wide level, international stocks are less expensive than U.S. stocks. And so the old story of global diversification, you've got a U.S. market in the last 20 years, only one time has the U.S. been the best performing developed market. The other 19 years, another country did better. So global diversification giving you a better opportunity to be where the winners are less expensive right now on a relative basis, international developed as well as emerging markets. So maybe that's a place for some allocation. Um, In the US, I also think that if you look at value versus growth, right now, growth stocks are the most expensive compared to value stocks that they've been since 2000. And 2000 was the very end of the tech bubble where the S&P 500, the large tech stocks had done so well. That burst, and then value stocks did very well in the years to follow. And so, obviously, I don't have a crystal ball around the timing of it, but when you look at relative valuations, value stocks are attractive relative to growth stocks right now. And so, maybe it's a time for a transition over to there. Um, and then in bonds, you know, to, to circle back to that, even in, quote unquote, one of the worst years we've seen, um, in the second quarter, U.S. bonds were down 0.16%. So that's the kind of volatility I think, think most people can stomach. With diversification, I think it's always important to realize, too, that it works both ways. And so everybody I've ever met loves the diversification bonds provide in a 2008 scenario when stocks fall 40% and their bonds are up 5%. People are all for diversification. When stocks are up 15% or 20% and bonds are up too, people all of a sudden, the idea of diversification isn't as appealing, but it does work both ways. And the idea isn't that you get the good without the bad. The idea is that you build a portfolio that gives you a smoother ride and hopefully gets you to your destination with less uh, volatility. Let, Let me ask you another question with regards to bonds, because I think some people at this point think, all right, I get the, the need for safety, but why not just go into cash right now? Because if, if interest rates are going to go up and my bond prices are going to go down, why wouldn't I just be in cash right now? What's the advantage of being in bonds? Yeah, so if interest rates are going to go up, there's no advantage to being in bonds and you should sit in cash. Um, so all the people with a perfect crystal ball that know exactly for a fact that interest rates are going to go higher, that know how much higher they're going to go, when they're going to stop going higher and turn around and reverse, those people should sit in cash until the magic day when interest rates are going to reverse and go lower and then move into bonds on that day. Um, those people are also billionaire bond traders in all likelihood. For the rest of the people and for, for Joe and Al here, you know, the idea is that cash doesn't yield much. And even with higher rates recently, you can get maybe 1% on cash or something like that. You can get 3% on a bond portfolio. And in an environment where interest rates go higher over time, the yield on that bond portfolio is going to go up. And so as long as you don't need the money in the short term, you're going to be just fine owning bonds. And in fact, higher rates are a bondholder's best friend. Conversely, in an environment where rates go lower, and despite the fact that everybody kind of quote unquote knows rates have to go higher, it's certainly possible rates go lower. We're late in an economic cycle. At some point, we'll turn around and have a recession. At that point, rates could go lower. At that point, the people that own cash are going to see their yields go back down because as the Fed turns around and cuts interest rates, returns on cash are going to fall again and go back down towards zero where it was previously. People that have bought bond portfolios are going to be locked in at that 3 or 4% yield or whatever they've gotten and are going to be very happy that they're in bonds with appropriate maturities as opposed to cash. And but of course, I, I think some people get confused too when they hear the Fed is increasing rates. Well, what rate are I mean it's the Fed funds rate. It's not necessarily going to affect your bond portfolio tomorrow. So, such a key point is that the Fed controls one interest rate and there are hundreds or even thousands of interest rates out there. The Fed only controls to your point the overnight lending rates. And so for maybe cash or prime rate for your credit card, when the Fed moves it has an instantaneous impact. Uh, for longer term bonds, there are a lot of factors that drive them. But ultimately, it's growth and inflation expectations that are going to determine longer-term bond yields. Keep in mind, and this sounds counterintuitive, but if you own long-term bonds, the Fed raising interest rates is your best friend. 
Because why does the Fed raise interest rates? They raise interest rates to slow the economy and contain inflation. If you own longer-term bonds, five-year bonds, 10-year bonds, 30-year bonds, inflation is the boogeyman. That's what you don't want to have happen. And so the idea that the Fed is, all else being equal, restraining future inflation and future growth is your friend if you're a bondholder. And what you've seen historically is not always, but oftentimes when the Fed raises the interest rate that they control, longer term rates decline or stay approximately in place. And we've seen that where short term rates in the US have gone from zero to 2% or something like that. The two year treasury now is at 2.6. The 10-year Treasury has drifted up a little bit higher, but the differential between two-year and 10-year Treasuries has compressed quite a bit because short-term rates have gone higher. Longer-term bond investors still don't see inflation out there, so bonds prices have been relatively steady. Brian, appreciate you hanging out with us today. Southern California listeners, you can join Brian Perry, CFP, CFA, in person at the Pure Financial Office in San Diego for a free Lunch and Learn halftime report at 11 a.m. on Thursday, August 23rd. Visit purefinancial.com slash lunch to sign up. Brian will dive deeper on the current state of the economy and how tax reform is affecting you, and he'll be available to answer your questions. The Lunch and Learn Halftime Report with Brian Perry on Thursday, August 23rd is free and lunch is included. But to attend, you've got to sign up at purefinancial.com slash lunch. Got a great guest, Alan. Yeah, we do. And Joe, as always, the favorite part of the show for me because I actually get to learn something. Oh, my God. You're going to learn a lot today, my friend. I know it. We got Med Faber on the line. Um, he's co-founder and chief investment officer of Cambria Investment Management. And uh, he's got an awesome podcast. It's The Med Faber Show. Uh, he's written several awesome books, and he's got a new book coming out very, very shortly. So I want to welcome Med Faber. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Hey, I don't know how much we're paying you to get on this little rinky-dink show, but <laughs> I'm telling you I'm very excited, and this is, uh, this is a real treat for me. I take I take payment in pale ales and stouts and porters. <laughs> Perfect. That's how we pay. <laughs> exactly. Oh uh, well, I got a few questions for you before we get into your book. Let's say that you could only invest in one stock for the rest of your life, and you could never sell it. What stock would that be? So, like, I answer all my questions. My wife gets so tired of this. There's, like, ten qualifiers I have to ask. <laughs> you say the stock. Is, is it allowed to be anything publicly traded? Because if it could be an ETF, that, that changes the criteria. Or does it, ha- it has to be purely a listed security. Well, I think um, wherever you want to take this, let's start with, we could go with an individual security that's listed on an exchange. And then we could take this if there's a certain style, because that was going to be my follow-up question, Beth. Okay. The, the, we could spend probably the entire show drilling down this <laughs> rabbit hole, by the way. Um, you know, because my perspective is, look, first of all, I would, I would love to invest. If it's something I have to hold forever, I want to diversify away my single stock risk. And so that means probably investing in some sort of conglomerate like a Berkshire Hathaway. We just chatted. I was, I was just in Omaha. And that business is nice because it owns quite a bit of private businesses, public businesses, all sorts of stuff mashed together. It's got um, some groomed lieutenants after after Warren and Charlie uh, Sunset. They're getting in their 80s and 90s. So I'd probably buy Berkshire. Now, the, the caveat to that and the reason I asked is, you know, I'm, I've kind of been well on the record last few years in my belief that uh, there's more to investing than just what's on our shores here in the U.S. And, I, and I'm of the belief that a lot of the rest of the world is quite a bit cheaper and so if I was able to buy a, say, region or entire market, 
I would certainly prefer to do that in any number of countries or regions. But the problem is I, I'm, I don't know off the top of my head any uh, great um, business there. And you run the same risk there, which is the kind of non-diversified risk of owning a single security. So I'll go with, I'll go with Berkshire. With your um, latest book, it's a second um, coming or second edition, I guess is a better term. Um, it's the best investment writing, uh, which is phenomenal. Uh, so what you're doing is you're taking all these little short stories, articles that some of the best minds in finance have written, and you, you just kind of mash them up into a book. Um, now, there's so many different people that are that are in this book, or, or both of your books now, and it's from different styles. you got people that are straight indexers to hedge fund managers to um, you, you name the gamut. If you could choose any of those individual style that you would have to stick with for the rest of your life, which one would that be? So the nice thing about the book, by the way, is that you know we all spend so much time dealing with this day-to-day noise and bombarded with, with so much information on geopolitics and economics and investment, what's going on every day. And, and the, the whole point of the book was sort of to take a step back, offer a curated offering. I mean, it's like 400 pages, by the way, version two. There was so much good writing. And say, what what is the single best thing that I read from a particular author or group of authors in the past year, and also the goal of getting out of sort of the echo chamber. You know, a lot of investors, just like a lot of uh, people when it comes to politics and everything else, you know, they have their particular style. So that may be buy and hold. It may be risk parity. It may be dividends. It may be gold bug, whatever it may be. And, you know, a lot of us spend almost all of our time looking for confirming evidence as to why we should continue to believe what we believe. So the nice thing about this book is it does offer a lot of varied opinions. And so I'm, I'm of the belief that there's no one pure best way to invest. And so, you know, my firm manages all sorts of public funds and we have different styles like global value and, and, uh, you know, tactical asset allocation, but I'm on the record saying, look, you know, I, I have no problem with buy and hold too. And a globally diversified, diversified asset allocation to me, if, if I had to pick one, this is a long-winded answer to your question. If I had to pick one, it would be a globally diversified portfolio, what we call the global market portfolio. So if you just went out and bought the entire world of publicly traded assets, you end up with a portfolio that's roughly half and a half stocks and bonds, and of that, about half and a half U.S., and then the rest global ex-U.S. And that, historically, has been a pretty awesome portfolio, and you own 20,000, 30,000 securities around the world, and it's kind of a all-in-one portfolio. And the, and the good news nowadays, you can usually get that portfolio through ETFs and other vehicles for pretty pretty darn cheap. I have a couple bullet points here that Andy put together for me. Um, since the book, what, it releases August 13th. And so a couple of things here. It says, why $1 trillion will flow into Chinese stock markets. Tell me more about that. I'm very intrigued. Yeah, I mean, the concept on that is if you look at the, the global equity market, this surprises a lot of people. If you were just to index the globe of stocks, you end up with about half in the U.S. And, and most investors, particularly in the U.S., have around 70, 80 percent of their equity exposure in the U.S. And, you know, we call that home country bias, meaning you have a lot more investing in your own country. And the thing is, it doesn't really just exist here. If you go over to Italy, if you go to Australia, if you go over to Japan, there's Vanguard has all these studies that show that investors invest in those countries way too much in their own country relative to the proportion of the globe 
And so a lot of people don't know it. And we often say, look, if you're going to make that bet, make that bet, that's fine. But at least you should be aware of it because it's a very active decision to overweight something. And it's actually much worse in some of these other countries because if Canada is only a couple percent of the, the global market and you're putting 70 percent in the Canadian market, that's a huge, huge bet. So whereas the U.S. is 50 percent, most people putting in 70, 80 is probably not as bad as, as the alternatives. Anyway, so the, the point of kind of this article is written by my friend uh, Steve Sugarud was was pointing out the fact and this is actually pretty well known that a lot of the indexes that had not historically included China and the various types of Chinese equities on uh, in, included in their indexes are starting to add them. And so by definition, a lot of these index funds out there will have to go out and start buying a lot of Chinese stocks. They don't even have a choice. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, capital that's already there that has to follow these indexes. And so, you know, his, his belief system and, and China is interesting because it's an obviously a, a developing country, but one of the largest economies in the world, when you have a lot of money sloshing around, there's certainly, it's pretty easy for, for fraud to happen, but that's the beauty of capitalism and financial markets is eventually you, you get found out. You know, if you look at examples here in the US, Enron and Theranos, I mean, people eventually find out. <laughs> and so with China, it's been hugely volatile. If you remember back to the mid 2000s, everyone was recommending China and the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China. But China and India got really expensive in the mid 2000s. They were trading the P ratios in the 40s and 60s. And then, of course, fast forward at past global financial crisis, a lot of these foreign developed and emerging market countries, stock markets never really recovered. So a lot of them got pretty cheap over the past few years. And we still think a lot of them are, are still pretty cheap. And China is probably we'd consider it to be normally valued to, 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 to cheap right now. So you have these two forces of, hey, this is a market that's quite a bit cheaper than the U.S. And, and all things considered, yes, you, you don't have the same controls as you do here. But realizing that there's going to be a ton of money flooding into that market makes uh, makes a pretty interesting argument for, for having a uh, reasonable exposure there. For a transcript of this interview, check out the show notes for this episode at yourmoneyyourwealth.com and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss our guest next week, former Motley Fool and Wall Street Journal columnist Morgan Housel, talking about how our brains and our behavior trip up our investing success and the spectrum of financial dependence to financial independence. For some ideas on investing given these volatile markets, visit the white paper section of the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com and download the free white paper, Pursuing a Better Investment Experience. Learn 10 key decisions that'll help you effectively target long-term wealth in capital markets. Find out how to let the markets work for you, why chasing past performance is a mistake, what drives expected returns, and how to improve your odds for long-term success. Download the white paper, Pursuing a Better Investment Experience for free from the white paper section of the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Hey, welcome back to the program. The show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Uh, my name's Joe Anderson with Big Al. Big Al, what are you thinking, man? I'm loving this investment talk. Hey, we got Med Faber on the line. Check out medfaber.com, and then it's the Med Faber Show. That's you know one of my favorite podcasts. Uh, we got a lot of podcast guests on the show, and I think Med is one of the best so far. Yeah, I believe so, yes. Hey, Meb, you know, you talked earlier about the U.S. market as being expensive. Um, and I think Al and I would both agree with you, um, you know, if you take a look at, I guess, the, the Schiller ratio and PEs. So what's your viewpoint on that? Would you want to overweight more emerging markets in, in international 
um, type companies at this point, or uh, or is that more of a timing move? Uh, yeah, how do you so, go about with that that ebb and flow? So if we look at the U.S. and for perspective, you know, we do use these long term P ratios, but any valuation metric says the same thing. And so if you look at a long term P ratio in the U.S., it's around thirty, but it's been as high as forty five. It's been as low as five. And during normal sort of mellow inflationary times like we're in now, it's usually around 20, low 20s. And so we're not like out there screaming, this is a bubble and you have to sell everything, it's going to crash. It it really just means you need to lower your expectations from people expecting this historical 10% returns. We think it's probably in the lower single digits. So it's kind of like going to the doctor, taking your medicine and say, look, spend less, save more with regards to the US. But with regards to your entire portfolio, we say, look, you know, the U.S. The starting point, starting point. If you're a diehard indexer, Vanguard through and through, is you should only have half in the U.S. But for all these people that own 70, 80 percent, you say, okay, well, maybe let's dial that back to where we have 50 percent in the U.S. and 50 percent in the rest of the world through foreign developed and emerging markets. And then, if you really want to get, uh, you know, a value bent, you could say, all right, well, we're going to tilt even more towards value, which ends up being right now emerging markets, you know, their long term PE ratio is around 15, 16, foreign developed is around low 20s. And if you get the cheapest bucket, the most disgusting, nasty, awful stock markets that are probably all down 40, 60, 80%, like Greece and Brazil and Russia, uh, that that basket has a PE ratio of around 12. So I think there's a lot of opportunity going. So going back to your original question, if you said, Meb, what would you buy for the next 10 years? I would hold my nose, close my eyes, <laughs> and buy a basket of uh, and important to say buy a basket because if you just go buy Russia or Brazil, you know th- those markets are so volatile they could do anything. But buy a basket of maybe ten of these countries. Our largest fund actually ETF does this. Um, I would buy that for ten years, put it away, close my eyes, and, and check back in in, in twenty twenty eight. I'll come back on come back on your show and see how it did. See how it does. <laughs> you, you know, it's funny because I, I, I've, I'm sure you've seen. Uh, the Callan charts, and then they go through different countries. And I think what over the last, you know, several decades, uh, the U.S. has only been the top performing market once. You know, maybe out of what a hundred years or something like that. So that home bias is, uh, I think, is so real. Uh, but you're right; you have to diversify out, and especially if you take a look at valuations, U.S. is is a little expensive. Um, so. Um, the portfolios that we look at, it's probably 90% um, U.S., and it's usually just large cap. Yeah. Um, and look, you, you get some, you know, people often say to me, they say, Mab, well, the U.S. gets a certain percentage of sales throughout the rest of the world, so aren't I getting foreign exposure already? And, and my response to that is always, absolutely, but the world's much more globalized now. So if you own foreign companies, you're also getting exposure to the U.S., and in that scenario where everything is interconnected spiderweb, wouldn't you want the countries that are ch- or the stocks that are cheaper? And so it's kind of being what we call asset class agnostic. And it's hard for people because, again, going back to the earlier comment, some people just love gold. Some people love dividend stocks. Some people love bonds, whatever it may be. But, you know, every as- asset class has its time in the sun. You mentioned like U.S. stocks. 2009 to 2014, one of the best performing stock markets in the world, if not the best performing. But historically, it's been a coin flip. U.S. versus foreign, they outperform about 50% of the time. And so you go through these cycles where something looks much better, then it has outperformance, and then it gets expensive, and that sets the stage for the next cycle. 
when the when the offense is going to occur. So I think we're certainly, if I was a betting man, and I am, I, I would looking out in the future certainly want to have exposure to these cheaper foreign markets uh, as well. Value. Um, speaking of going through cycles, the value premium has not really shown its face over the last several years. What's your take on that? Do you think um, it's it's going by the wayside because of technology you know, or? I agree with you, first of all, in, in saying value is also kind of like saying dog, where a beagle looks nothing like a Rottweiler, which lo- looks nothing like a Basset Hound, because there's a lot of different ways to measure value and a lot of different ways to measure it within a market, across markets. So value globally has worked fantastic the last two years, where a lot of these cheaper countries have vastly outperformed over the last two years. But you know, for, for the U.S. stock market in general, you've had this this market cap, large tech, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about the fangs, but but outperformance um, that has really driven a lot of the performance. And so a lot of this stuff goes through cycles. Let me give you a quick example. If, if you went back to 1999 and said, you know what, I'm going to start tracking Warren Buffett stock picks, you know, when they're public, he doesn't trade that much, pretty famous names. We all know him, Coca-Cola. All these uh, all these classic uh, names that he buys in the stock market, and he said, "I'm just going to buy his stocks, top ten stocks when they're public each quarter, and rebalance once a quarter." It takes me five minutes a quarter. Well, since that period, since 2000 and now, he would have outperformed the S and P by like five percentage points per year, which would have made him probably top one percent of all mutual funds on the planet. Uh, so this monster outperformance, and it wouldn't have cost you anything, any management fees. Now the challenge with that is. All that performance came from 2000, 2009, and in the past 10 years, this investment style of his, which is value, has underperformed the S&P eight of the past 10 years. And how many of us and how many listeners and how many institutions have the fortitude to stick with an investment style that is underperformed for that long, despite that fact, the style over the entire period has outperformed by five percentage points per year and one of the best performing funds on the planet. So... Um, it kind of goes to show a lot of us, uh, you know, in the media and in writing and everything else, you know, want to look at things on a daily, weekly, quarterly, even yearly basis. But it's pretty hard even to judge things on a, on a decade long time frame, whether it's an investment style, whether it's an asset class, whether it's security. And so a lot of people say they have a long term time horizon. But really, when it comes down to it, it's probably two years or less. But but to, we all we often say that the the true value an alpha of Warren Buffett is not his actual approach or his stock picks. It's actually pretty simple. We have some friends at AQR that have replicated it with a formula. You know, it's basically buying value uh, stocks that are high quality and adding a little leverage through the insurance float, and voila, you have an awesome portfolio. <laughs> We'd say his true alpha and value add is uh, he sticks to his knitting. Yeah. So, <laughs> despite it being ten years of, of you know poor returns, he's willing to stick to his style. We're talking to Meb Faber. Um, if someone reads um, your your latest book, four hundred some odd pages, you have what forty two uh, different individuals, some of the smartest guys um, in 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 the business in Wall Street or just in finance. If they read all of that, study it, um, still it's it's the emotions. I think you could follow it to the T. But as you're saying, is that all right? Well, how much fortitude does someone have um, or discipline? You know, to, to continue with that particular strategy 
um, and it's very, very difficult for for most to do it. So I, I, well, we spend most of our time trying to come up with behavioral ideas on how to keep people from doing dumb stuff. And you know, Vanguard has tried to quantify this, and we often say that it's one of the, if not the biggest benefit of having a financial advisor is having that sort of Chinese wall between um, a client and uh, the ability to make trades and do something foolish. Now, of course, <laughs> that doesn't mean financial advisors are also immune to what's exactly. going on in the world, and it's hard too, but this is also why we think it's important to have an investment plan. You know, Hopefully, it's something that's written down that you've shared with someone. It's kind of like a diet. You know, What good is a diet if you're, you're able to go open up the fridge every day uh, and go eat a cheeseburger. It's the same thing as if you're going to turn on CNBC and watch stock picks, right? So unless you have a plan um, and something that you share with someone else to, to keep you um, compliant, then it's usually uh, really hard to comply with. Yeah, without question. I mean, the, the diet industry, the diet books and the exercise, I mean, it's a multi-multi-billion dollar business and it's you know, all you got to do is, you know, eat right, exercise, get a little bit of sleep. I mean, it's it's pretty simple. It's, you know, and same with, I guess, investing, buy a globally diversified portfolio, keep your discipline, and control your cost, and, and manage your taxes. Uh, but it's a lot easier said, um, I guess, than done. That's right. So the old, old phrase, investing is simple. It's not easy. Yeah, it, 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 <laughs> you got that right. You know, one last thing. After the credit crisis of 2008, uh, there was a study done. I forget what company, and don't quote me on this, please. I mean, compliance, whatever. Um, I think it was like 2010. They went back to financial advisors, right? And then they asked them, did they change their overall investment philosophy or investment strategies? And I think it was like an overwhelming 70, 80% of advisors that they surveyed, you know, said, yes, they changed their strategy. So it's like, all right, well, man, if, if, if these people are trying to help their clients stay in their seats, but they're switching, moving back and forth, and they're getting freaked out, I mean, it, th- that's just a, a re- recipe for disaster. It's just a lose-lose at that point. Yeah, there was a study that I think it was 89, 99% of advisors said they would look to fire a manager if they underperformed for two years. And so that goes back to that old, um, there's been an academic paper that looked at pension funds, and it looked at 8,000 hiring and firing decisions. So... They looked at the manager that was getting fired and the manager they were replacing them with. And not surprisingly, for the prior three years, the manager, the new manager coming in had much better performance and the one they're firing had bad performance. But guess what? In the following three years, guess what happens? We all can, can speculate. The man, they should have just stuck with the old manager. Right. And so you had, the, you had the mean reversion where a style or a person was doing poorly, but then it, it, uh, you know, it kind of came back. And so they would have actually been better off uh, not even doing anything. And so the, I think it's a challenge. It's, it's hard for people. And, and it's something that doesn't just exist on the individual level. I mean, we the professionals, it's easy to look down on individuals and say uh, they're so irrational. But believe me, I see it every day at, at some of the biggest institutions in the country uh, that, have this, that suffer from the same behavioral challenges. We're talking to Med Faber. He's got a new book coming out. It's uh, The Best Investment Writing, Volume 2. It's uh, selected writing from leading investors and authors. Um, it's going to be released here August 13th, 2018. Andy, you know what I want to do? I want to uh, give that? away 20. I'm going to personally purchase 20 of these books okay. and give them away to all of our listeners. Okay, so email info at purefinancial.com to get your Meb Faber book. That's info at purefinancial.com to get your new book by Meb Faber starting August 13th. It's a great book. It's, it's phenomenal, Meb. I'm a huge, huge fan um, and this was a real treat. Uh, last question. Uh, Herbalife, Ponzi scheme or not? 
You know, I it's it's a lot of fun, but for a quant like me, it's also a little curious. Uh, you know, people get so obsessed with a lot of these stories, stocks, Herbalife. They become these hedge fund battlegrounds. Uh, Tesla, of course, is probably the most famous right now. And, and even certain things like cryptocurrencies, you know, people I say, and I often, I think I tweeted this out a while ago, I said, you know, in a world of 30,000 securities, it's odd to me that people get obsessed with one or two. And, and the investments that I think people really want to, to look for, the uncovered rocks one where no one wants to talk about it, it's boring, the company's making, you know, iron bridges or something, um, you know, where, where no one's following it. And so I, I am a pleasant sidelines uh, participant, excuse me, not participant, but, but onlooker for a lot of these stories. So Herbalife, I have no idea. I mean, it's these multi-level marketing companies have been very successful historically, but you know, is it, is it a righteous business model? I don't know. Is it a totally separate thing to call it a, a straight up fraud? Um, which is kind of a whole, a whole nother commentary. So I will, I will defer on that one. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, hey, thank you again. Um, have a uh, wonderful trip up north. Um, have a couple beers um, on me, and um, hopefully we can get you back on the show again. Awesome. It's been a blast, guys. Love to do it anytime. For Big Al Clopin, I'm Joe Anderson. I want to thank Andy Lass for producing such a wonderful show. Yeah, and I second that. Thank you, guys. I appreciate that. Wow. All right. Hey, I will see you next week. Show's called Your Money, You're Welcome. Special thanks to today's guest, Meb Faber. Check him out at mebfaber.com. That's M-E-B-F-A-B-E-R.com. And don't forget, the first 20 people to email info at purefinancial.com and ask for Meb's book, The Best Investment Writing, Volume 2, will get a free copy after the book is released on August 13th. Subscribe to the podcast at yourmoneyyourwealth.com or you can find us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Player FM, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, or any other place that you happen to listen to your podcasts. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. 